I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition. Today, we will continue to look at the trials of Christ, but it's going to be this, you know, meanwhile, back at the temple scene, where we now will look at the suicide of the apostle and betrayer, Judas Iscariot also try to examine his motives and the effects of his betrayal. Now, if you have any questions or comments related specifically to today's topic, we invite you to be a part of the show by calling us at 1-800-221-9460. If you are not in North America, that number won't work. So you can call another number, which is country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. That's 1-205-271-2980. Or you can contact us through email by writing to scriptureandtradition at EWTN.com, Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com. You can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. We'll get questions from there every so often. Now, we're continuing to go through my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can still get that book at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com. It is item 81098. 81098. We are starting today's discussion on page 112. Now, one of the, uh, we'll take a look at Jewish, uh, Judas committing suicide. And we'll be looking at Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4. There's a lot of irony in this because Judas gives a true decision about Jesus that contrasts with the decision made by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin condemned Jesus on false charges. Judas will render a true verdict at this point. So let's read that verse. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 3 to 4. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that he was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. Now, this is quite remarkable. Uh, I've mentioned in previous programs uh, the teaching from the Mishnah and the tractate Sanhedrin 4 where this testimony by Judas, his betrayer, should have been admitted into court. Here you have evidence and uh, 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 an eyewitness. Remember, they did not have DNA testing. That's only in my lifetime they started that. They didn't really understand about fingerprints and some of the other evidence. Um, but personal testimony was key. 
And they should have stopped everything by, by Jewish uh, legal procedure, stopped everything and brought Judas in uh, to exonerate Jesus the next day. Um, and this is because Jewish legal procedure assumed that witnesses could be brought in. That's why they would give a sentence you know, or, or give a, a decree, guilty or not guilty. Uh, in their case, they didn't say guilty or not guilty. They would say wicked or righteous. That was their official decree. You would either be wicked or righteous in uh, Jewish courts. And they would have to wait for the sentencing to be the day after they give the verdict. And that was in order to give, especially in the capital crime case, give other witnesses a chance to come forward. But what we have seen during Jesus' trial is that the evidence was you know, not really important. Uh, they had brought in witnesses who were false witnesses and you know, Judas' decision had nothing to do with the truth. Um, remember, uh, Judas was, you know, lying. Uh, and, and even prior to his lying, go back to what we saw at the beginning of Matthew 26 and in John 13 and in Luke 22, all these places. It said that Satan had entered into Judas. And Satan, as our Lord taught very clearly in John chapter 8, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. That's, and so when Judas was back at the Last Supper in Matthew 26, verse 25, it says, Judas, who betrayed him, said, Is it I, Lord? Jesus said to him, you have said so. So this is something that, um, uh, you know, he was lying then. And th it's very important to realize that. And then notice here in Matthew uh, 27, verse 3, it says, Judas, his betrayer. The word that's used for him being a betrayer is derived from the same verb used uh, in 27 verse 2. Remember, these are side by side, these verses. Right after they tried Jesus, in Matthew 27 2, it says, they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. That word delivered him is the verb paredokan, paredokan, excuse me, paredokan, they deliver, it's a plural, um, is the same word, uh, root for the word betrayer. It comes from that same verbal root, exactly. And this is showing the symbiotic relationship between the Sanhedrin and Judas. The Sanhedrin paid Judas to betray Jesus, 
paid him 30 pieces of silver, good amount of money. And Judas went ahead and handed him over to the Sanhedrin. So they're going, and the fact that he is a betrayer and they betrayed Jesus to Pilate uh, or handed him over, because the word to betray means one who hands over somebody. Um, this shows the relationship uh, in the, voca the vocabulary used in the Gospels to um, sh show the symbiotic relationship between Judas and the Sanhedrin. And again, we lose that in English because we use different uh, words. But uh, this is, uh, if you think of it as uh, traditor, uh, the one who hands something over, hands someone over, is the basis for our English word traitor. So that's the same kind of connection. So um, this is uh, very important because on one hand, we see that the Sanhedrin had betrayed its own principles of justice in court by holding the trial at night when you're not supposed to do, that's supposed to be in the daytime. And by condemning Jesus with false witnesses uh, and in, uh, as well as incorrect procedure, and that was a sin against the Eighth Commandment. Being a false witness goes straight against the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's very clear. So um, we see that with the Sanhedrin. Then Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss in order to get the 30 pieces of silver. This is uh, something that uh, we see. And the motives of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees to seek Jesus' death had been developing for a while. They were upset that he was doing exorcisms. They were upset that he was forgiving sin. Remember when the man was lowered through the roof and Jesus says, uh, son, your sins are forgiven? Well, they get all very upset that he forgave their sin, the sins of that man because they say only God can forgive sins. So this is, um, you know, uh, some of the stuff that they were upset about. And he was criticizing them for their hypocrisy any number of times. So that's why they want to get rid of him. You know, he's successful and he's criticizing them. Judas has a different motive. He has a very different motive about uh, betraying Jesus. Uh, first of all, the, his main motive is his love of money. He wanted the 30 pieces of silver. And he saw the offer by the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus as a way to get more money. And we, should be, we shouldn't be too surprised at that. And then we take a look in John chapter 12, verses 5 to 6. It was Judas, after the, the woman anoints Jesus' feet with very precious ointment. Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii 
a denarius was a day's wage, and given to the poor. So that's what he says. He wants the money given to the poor. But St. John adds, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take what was put into it. So he'd been stealing for a while. And this is a very important point. People who sin, once they give themselves permission to commit one sin, it becomes very easy for them to give themselves permission to keep sinning. They can keep going back to the same sin. It's easy for them to do that. And that's what Judas was doing. So that later on, when you get to Matthew 26, verse 15, he's the one who says, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now that also happens, by the way, to fulfill a prophecy. Back in the uh, prophet um, uh, Zechariah, uh, where it says it, they, they paid out 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. So that, that's one of the other elements there, the treating Jesus like a slave, not realizing that he is the servant of the Lord that had been prophesied other places by the prophet Isaiah, especially Isaiah 53. We also can see something else. A very important verse, a lot of people talk about this verse, often misquoting it. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where St. Paul wrote to Timothy, who was the bishop of Ephesus, and said, for the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pains. That's very important right there. That notice it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It's not. Money is a tool. It's not worthy of being a goal. You know, some people uh, would, if they try to accumulate money, and just keep gathering and get as much as they can and make themselves into misers who just want to be able to say, I have this much money. Well, that's dumb because money sitting there doesn't do much for you. It's something that is a tool to use in accomplishing other tasks. It's a useful tool to accomplish other things, but it is just a tool. But when you turn it into a goal and have a love of money that becomes, as St. Paul said, a craving, basically the basis for the sin of coveting other people's stuff, that's when it becomes sin. And it even gets people to leave the faith. And so Judas is very much an example of that love of money, getting him to betray uh, Jesus. And notice, the, the Bible never says that Judas disagreed with some teaching of Christ. He never 
said that, well, I think Jesus was not really doing the miracles. He never said that. He was there. He was a witness to the raising of Lazarus and to the little girl, the daughter of Jairus being raised up and the widow of Nain. And he saw the multiplication of loaves and fish and all that. He saw the miracles. He didn't disagree with that. Didn't disagree with anything our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount or in the parables or anything. There's nothing indicating that Jesus had said something nasty to Judas or had slighted him in some way or insulted him. Nothing like that. There's no other motive given for betraying Jesus except that he loved money. And this is something that's very important. Now, the absence of these other motives that it's only money that he was seeking that actually may have helped Judas realize what a foolish thing he had done. He knew Jesus to be an innocent and holy man, at the very least. He may not have fully understood him as the Son of God, maybe, but I doubt it. But he at least knew that him to be a good man. Judas just wanted money. That's the thing that uh, he was focusing on. And when he realized that Jesus had been condemned to death, that may have been just a bridge too far, maybe more than he thought would happen. And he's still capable at this point of understanding that Jesus is completely innocent. He understands that much. And he thinks that uh, it's uh, a sin to have betrayed Jesus. He realizes he was in the wrong. Now, this is good because he was uh, beginning the, the possibility of true repentance. This could have been the possibility of true repentance. But he didn't because the word in the, the New Testament they use is not the word for repent. The word for repent is metanoia or metanoain is the verb, metanoain, to turn around. That's not the word that's used here. It's the word metamalethes, metamalethes. It's a different word entirely. And metamalethes is a word that much more means regretted. Now, the Revised Standard Version has repent, um, but th that's not the word here. And I think it would be where he never quite moved towards repentance. He was in that direction, but didn't make it. He regretted this as a mistake. And as a result, mere regret will lead to his suicide. Peter will repent and truly be sorry. But Judas will regret his mistake and 
not come to repent. All right. Well, let's stop there. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and continue on to see how the priests react to Judas and how they treat this situation. So please stay with us. Welcome back. We've been looking at Judas regretting what he did. And now we see what this, he's saying all this to the chief priests. As he's back there. You know. So again, this should have stopped the legal procedure, stopped the trial, stopped the condemnation, you know, bring him back, don't let him go to Pilate. That should have put an end to it right then and there. But what do the priests do in a rather curt and cynical way? They say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, he had given false testimony in betraying Jesus and that he, was in, he knew Jesus to be innocent. The charge against him was not real. And... They, they said, well, you take care of that yourself. We've got what we have to do. And this is something that they should have dealt with in terms of working out legal justice. When judges in the court are not acting in accord with correct procedure, the whole people is at risk. You know, this is a very important issue. Um, you know, you don't want judges to be, you know, corrupt because then what chance do you have in such a society? Remember how it was under the Nazis and the communists and sometimes when we've had situations of very corrupt judges in our own country, usually for money, like Judas. So this is what they should have done. And this is a basic principle within Judaism. It's, again, it's in Tractate Sanhedrin in the Mishnah, as we looked at uh, chapter, verse 4. Also, if the priests had reopened this case, Judas, along with all the other people who had given false testimony during the trial, could have been executed as false witnesses. Now that indicates that Judas was actually taking a very big risk in bringing this all up. That's pretty serious. And this is uh, uh, could have meant his own death to come up to the court and say, you know, the man is innocent. It would also have been necessarily an indictment of the priests and the Pharisees and the whole Sanhedrin for their incorrect 
procedure, they would all have been in trouble. Instead, they don't want to deal with any of that. They don't want to change it. They just say, Judas, you just take care of your own false testimony. And tragically, it is Judas' own attempt to take care of the problem of sin by his own efforts that leads to remorse and regret rather than real repentance. He tries to handle his guilt on his own instead of bringing it to God. And that is a huge mistake. We need the grace of Almighty God to deal with our sins. We need the cross of Jesus Christ as the basis for our forgiveness and not our own cleverness. That's never enough. Now, let's take and apply some of this to the theme of my book. Remember, I'm not just laying out, you know, what happened at Jesus' trials, but trying to apply this in wheat and tares to the situation of the horrible sexual scandals that we had. The, the worst of the scandals, of course, involved the sexual abuse of the young, but any other sexual misconduct, even with fully consenting adults, is immoral and wicked, and it turns behavior back. So we have to pay attention to some of this, and there might be some insights, I think, in regard to Judas and his situation. First, priests and bishops were involved in a number of sexual scandals. Uh, again, not only with minors, but with consenting adults. And they themselves ought to look at Judas and the Sanhedrin as models for understanding their own behavior when they did those things. Priests who committed these terrible crimes, as well as the other sexual misconduct, Kate may have realized, like Judas, that they had betrayed the young people, that had trusted them, and they robbed them not of money, but of innoc their innocence. That's a terrible thing. You can't give that back. You can't give that back to them. When their innocence is stolen, it's gone. And this is something they did despite their earlier training and earlier commitment to the service of God and his people, just like Judas had been following Jesus for three years. And he went ahead and did this. And like Judas, who gave in to his passion for money, too many clergy, like people outside the clergy too, you know, don't, we don't want to forget, this is a widespread problem, but some of the clergy, a small percentage of the clergy, had given into the same kind of self-centered control of their own passions. They wanted to gratify themselves and gratify their passions and became very self-centered. Now, here's a, a reality. The, the great majority of the perpetrators of child sexual abuse did it once. That's a, again, I always add, once is too much. 
There's, that's not an excuse. But many of them did come to, the majority of them, about 85% realized when they did it once, oh, what have I done? This is horrendous. And they you know, realized that they had done uh, great harm to these others, and they never did it again. They realized this was bad. But still, the problem was that one young person lost their innocence, and they remained harmed by the act and betrayed by the act. Um, and this is, you know, it doesn't matter whether it was heterosexual or homosexual, their, their innocence was robbed and they were harmed by an adult being in an abusive relationship. And, you know, a lot of times the adult perpetrators hoped that it would just sort of go away. They tried to make it, you know, pretend it wasn't there. But the reality is that it was usually something that simmered under the surface for the young people until they were adults. And then later in life, when it's harmful effects, you know, showed up in their marriages and other relationships, that, uh, and a variety of other psychological issues and so on, that's when it came back. That's why a lot of the victims, when they became older, realized the impact of what had happened to them and they would bring charges, they would confront the adult abuser, uh, even if it was decades old. That's why most of the, the vast majority of cases of child abuse that you hear about from uh, the clergy are from decades ago. There's not much of that now. There's other kinds of abuse that sometimes goes on, or misconduct, better way to put it. There, there can be other misconduct ha happening in this, these times, but um, the child abuse is mostly in the past. And one of the problems has been that sometimes, like the Sanhedrin, who refused to take responsibility for their bad decisions, their wrong and evil decisions, not just bad decisions since it wasn't such a good idea to do this. No, bad in the sense of being evil decisions. Sometimes priests and bishops denied they did anything wrong to the young people. They may have tried to cover it up. They may claim that it was not abusive since it was consensual with a young person. They didn't force them. They got consent. Um, or that even the young person may have initiated it uh, or might have been helpful to the young man. This is one of the things that they have. Um, and they uh, sometimes try to deceive their accusers uh, or even themselves. They try to deceive God. Um, these kind of things went on with all that abuse. But their own commitment to their pleasure, their advantages, or their false good intentions, their present place in society and the church. And sometimes, in the cases of some of them, the accumulation of a lot of wealth, that also is the case. All of that had made them cavalier with the facts. They didn't really treat the facts, and they didn't go into the deeper truth of the harm they did. And this attitude uh, was found among the minority. That was the 15% of the, 
all the clergy abusers uh, who became re repeated uh, offenders. Um, again, just like Judas who kept stealing all along, the repetition of the sin helps a person to squash their own uh, conscience and they don't listen to the voice inside of, of reason and good thoughts and righteousness. And sometimes they don't have any uh, empathy for their victims and sometimes they can even use both church law and secular law to get out of it. Um, you know, that we see that with plenty of lawyers. So the antidote, and this is what we have to focus on, the antidote to legalistic manipulation is un to understand fully the truth of the moral principles in the law, not only civil law, but church law. Doing these kind of th uh, evils against young people is a very serious sin, and the church strongly has condemned it. We have to understand those principles. And these principles are also in the, our conscience with the basic natural law, which is don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. So you should never do some sort of abuse that you don't want someone to do to you. And we also have to be careful that we remember God's judgment. God will judge each one of us with absolute clarity and honesty. He will judge us by His truth, not by our excuses. And a very important part of growing in Christian maturity is to be able to understand that God's judgment is inevitable. Inevitable. You, none of us can escape it. The most honest judgment, more honest than we can judge ourselves. His judgment is that honest. And what we need to do as the antidote is seek to live an integrity of moral life. We're, and that word integrity is key. We have to integrate our bad motives, our bad desires, our passions, our out-of-control desires with the true values of God's commandments and of the natural law. That we want to make sure that we don't allow our passions to control us. We don't say, well, I felt that I can't help it. It's, 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 it's took control of me. No, that's not acceptable for any of us. We have to say, God, give me the grace to place my bad passions under your control, Lord. Asking St. Michael the Archangel, say the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel to defend us in battle, the battle against sin, and find strength to overcome temptation and undo it with prayer and seeking to understand morals more deeply. That kind of integrity that we prepare ourselves for the, by which we prepare ourselves for the judgment seat of God, this is the task of life. You don't hear that much in our society. It's not the wisdom of the media and the politicians and the business people and such, but it's the wisdom of Jesus Christ, and that's what we have to seek.
All right, we'll stop there and we'll continue. The next time we come back to deal with the book, we're going to take do a couple things for the holidays uh, the next couple of weeks, but we'll, uh, we'll get back to this in the new year. So we'll continue on from there to what Judas did. It's time for us to take a look at some of your questions. Okay. First of all, I have a question from YouTube. I have to look at the monitor for this one. Father Mitch, does John the Beloved's uh, statement in John chapter 12 about Judas, where Judas was stealing all along, does that mean that he and possibly other dis apostles knew that Judas was skimming off the top of the coffers? And Jesus or none of the others did anything about it? Veronica in Birmingham. Interesting. You know, um, here is one of the things that, you know, I, I, John doesn't tell us how he knew that. But I think you're onto something. There was a pattern with St. John and the other disciples in regard to Judas, that they kind of let him get away with stuff. Remember, uh, we, we talked about this when we were discussing the Last Supper, that Jesus had said, one of you is about to betray me. And at that point, my Chicago instinct would have kicked in and said, all right, lock all the doors. Shut everything down. Nobody leaves this room until we find out who the traitor is. And then he's not leaving either. That would have been my instinct. But then Judas does go out and it was night. And what did the apostles do? They said, oh, he might be going to give something for the poor. He had been taking from the common purse all along. He, Judas used words of care for the poor as a way to cover up his stealing. And at that moment in the Last Supper, they should not have let him go out. They came up with the excuse. And as I mentioned back when we covered that back then, I would mention it again. This is where the, it would be similar to those uh, priests and bishops who did not investigate things that looked bad, where somebody may be doing something wrong. And I better investigate this. Oh, no, I, that guy would never do that. Uh, it, it's that kind of making excuses. It's a, it's a human problem that we too easily make excuses when there is clear evidence that something is wrong. My parents, unfortunately for me, but in the long term, very fortunately, when something didn't smell right, they got down to the bottom of it and disciplined me for it. That's how we have to treat this. And we didn't do it in the church, and the apostles didn't do it with the apostles, with, with Judas. It's a human problem. It recurs in history, and it teaches us to be more careful 
about some of the things going on. And we should think about that when we take a look at various items in the news. When, you know, we've seen a lot of people who are fast and loose with excusing words that sound like anti-Semitism and calls for genocide of Jewish people, and there are folks who are a little, little fast and loose with all that. Get down to the bottom of it. That's not tolerable. That is intolerable behavior. And it's true with other bad behavior. We always have to be alert to that. I'm afraid that John the Apostles were not in regard to Judas, and we should learn from that. Okay? All right. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Well, be sure to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We'll be talking with Father Stephen Besso about the Pontifical College Josephinum's vocational mission to prepare holy, generous, adaptable, and resilient priests dedicated to pastoral ministry in the 21st century. This is a very important uh, thing. Uh, you know, we, important for us to discuss vocations and the, the really impressive quality of so many of the vocations coming in now. So it'll be a good discussion, I think. All right, let's take a phone call here. We have William calling from the great state of Louisiana, the sportsman's paradise. Hello, Hello, Father Madge. Yes, William, what can we do for you? Father Mitch, I wanted to respectfully point out to you that at the Last Supper, all of the disciples, when Jesus said, someone will betray me, they all said, is it I, Lord? Mm-hmm. However, Judas said, is it I, Master? That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, you, and had said, I, you had said earlier that it was I, Lord. Uh, well, in one, all right, here's, here's one of the things. Let me just take a quick look, and it depends on which um, gospel. In um, we, we see that in, because not in all the gospels that he called the master, um, and it's in the Gospel of Mark that he uh, says, Master, and also in Matthew 26. But he doesn't say that in Luke or John. So it's a little that I read the, the um, text. I didn't read the text from uh, Matthew or Mark. 
I believe I, I forget, I think it was from uh, John. So, um, you know, this is, uh, it's just a variation in the text, but you're correct that in Matthew 26, verse 25, it is, it is I, uh, is it I, Master? And then when he greets Jesus in Gethsemane, he calls him Master. Um, so that's, that, that's what's going on there, okay? But thank you for bringing that up. We have another caller in, Carol in Pennsylvania. Carol, what can we do for you? Hi, Father Mitch. I listen to you all the time. You're very informative. I have a question. Since only God knows our deepest feelings, would it be wrong to remember Judas when I pray for the forgotten souls? Uh, our Lord said he prays for the, remembers the most forgotten sinners, and he prays for the most forgotten sinners. And I can't think of anyone any worse than Judas. So right. is it wrong in including him in prayer, or do we know for a fact that there is no salvation for Judas? First of all, Carol, uh -huh. this is a very important question. And I can remember uh, Sister Ida bringing that up back when I was in eighth grade, that they made it very clear. The church will declare lots of people to be saints, but the church has never declared with the same assurance that any person is in hell. Nobody, we, I mean, uh, we, uh, you know, wouldn't declare Hitler for sure in hell or Judas. And she used Judas and Hitler as examples because for the same reason you mentioned, we don't know their disposition at the very last moment before they died. Could they have possibly asked for forgiveness? And so the church leaves it open and does not say that Judas is for sure in hell. Now, is it very likely that he, you know, was saved? You know, there's not much, there's no evidence that uh, we have that he or Hitler, for that matter, or Stalin, you know, repented. Um, we don't have any of that kind of evidence. Um, but, the church leaves it open. Now, in regard to praying, therefore, for the possibility of a soul, what I would do is pray in this way. If, uh, you know, you could say, Lord, if Judas were in purgatory, I want to pray for his soul. Um, if he is not there, then I want my prayer to be for somebody who, you know, has nobody else to pray for them. So you can make it a conditional thing. If he's mentioned in, as being in, uh, if it's possible that he is in purgatory, I want to pray for his, the, uh, his soul. But if he's not there, then let my prayer be applied to somebody else. Put that condition on there. I think that would be a good thing. And and again, as I think in great charity, you're very correct to say that we would pray for uh, those who have nobody else to pray for them. 
Okay, that would be my sense. All right, now we have an email from Regina, and she asks a very good question here. You mentioned there have been bad popes in the history of the church. How do we explain the role of the Holy Spirit in electing a pope? Regina. Well, you know, I'm no genius on this kind of thing, um, but I would go reference myself to somebody who is, namely Pope Benedict XVI. Somebody asked him, well, the Holy Spirit directed that you would be elected pope, so why did you step down? And he, he very importantly said this, the Holy Spirit did not elect me, the cardinals elected me. So that the cardinals are going to use their own wits to the best of their ability sometimes. In some parts of history, the cardinals did not act according to their own, uh, the, to the best interests of the church. Sometimes the cardinals acted in the best interest of their own families and who might get a promotion and what kind of deals. And Pope Benedict knew enough about church history to realize that these cardinals uh, may well have uh, had some not so good motives, uh, you know, at any time in history. But he puts his election upon them for whatever their motives might be. What he did add, though, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who protects him from teaching error to the universal church. Some popes made errors. You know, that, that, that also happened, but they never made it the teaching of the universal church. There, there was uh, an early, a couple early popes who basically, mis, one of them especially misunderstood the monothelitist heresy, which means that Christ only had a, uh, a divine will, didn't have a human will. And because he misunderstood it, he mistaught. But he did make an official teaching, and he was later on corrected. All right, so that's, that's that. And then, let's see, let's go to Richard. Richard said uh, this, In Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23, the Holy Family fled immediately to Egypt to escape Herod's persecution. Yet in Luke 2, 21, the presentation in the temple occurred uh, eight days, no, actually 40 days after Jesus' birth. What is the correct timeline between the two gospel passages? First of all, we don't know that the flight into Egypt was immediate because notice how in Matthew's gospel, Herod says, kill every child two years old and younger. So he was aware that the child could be as old as two. Uh, uh, or, or certainly younger. And that means that there was something of a delay from the birth of the child to the arrival of the Magi. So 
whereas St. Luke gives us this timeline, uh, eight days after birth he was circumcised, <coughs> that would have happened in Bethlehem where he was born, and then 40 days after birth was the presentation in the temple and the purification of Mary. So that was 40 days. We have to assume, you know, that therefore the visit of the Magi were still a little bit later. Okay, so that was not immediate, but fairly soon uh, after that. And that's why we see that kind of time sequence, because it says that they uh, explained when they saw the star and all that. Um, it's interesting that following the star did not lead them to Jesus immediately led him to Herod, while following the scripture as explained by the Pharisees helped uh, when they quoted Micah 5 verse 1. That took them to Bethlehem and then the star pointed to Jesus. So that's a good thing to note. All right, we have to take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of, uh, well, we'll be back. We're done for the day. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know, we're going to be having a lot of Christmas specials as well as our regular programming. And this network can do all that only because the network is brought to you by you. So to help us with these special programs, please remember to keep us between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill and we'll be able to pay all of our satellite bills and bring you those great Christmas specials. God bless you and take care. Bye. <music>